thought that we have is a story that we're telling ourselves. This is the whole basic model of cognitive behavioral therapy that the thoughts that we tell ourselves or the stories that we accept as true then shape how we feel, which then shape how we show up in the world. But in order to find out what really does light you up, you have to create space by stepping away from the story, which I think is so hard and scary and really doesn't happen for too many people. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the Assistant Dean of Professionalism and an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School, where she leads initiatives designed to promote student wellness, mentorship, and professional identity formation. She teaches courses on positive lawyering and peer mentoring and leadership and was voted Fordham Law Adjunct Professor of the Year in 2021. She is also the founder of JC Coaching and Consulting, a company that partners with law firms and law schools to advance the well-being of the legal profession by building positive institutional cultures in which lawyers and law students feel valued, stimulated, and supported. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Jordana Confino. Jordana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sigal. I am truly delighted to be here today. I am very excited to have you here today. And I know you already know this, so we're going to get right into it. What is your favorite moment so far that you've had today? I did know this, and I'll tell you in a minute why I love this question so much, but my moment of delight from this morning is that it finally feels like springtime, and my husband and I moved to the suburbs at the end of last summer, so this is my first time experiencing spring in our new environment, and there is this idyllic pond that's about five minutes from my house, and it's a happy day when I get to do a loop around the pond before I start my day. And I got to do that today. And it was magnificent. That is my slice of life gratitude for the day, for sure. I was actually just reading when it came to wellness and well-being that getting regularly outdoors every single day was probably one of the most effective ways to improve your well-being. Absolutely. Not only your your well-being, but also your creativity and your cognitive functioning and your health, which is great to know because I feel like so many people keep themselves locked up inside kind of miserably, but thinking that they're being like a martyr for the cause of their work and it's going to help them be more effective. And the truth is, is that if you're feeling low in energy, which like who isn't these days ever, um, the best thing you could do is probably get outside for a walk. So I love that. But I will also say, just going back to what you said earlier, I was thinking about it in the days leading up to this because I love your podcast. I knew you were going to ask me for my gratitude. So I, I had my eyes open. I'm like, what is going to be the thing that I'm grateful for? And what that does is it tricks your brain into doing the opposite of what we normally do, which is honing in on all of the bad things and the negative. And instead, I was looking for every positive thing and thinking like, which of these things am I most grateful for in this moment, which is just such an un incredible way to start the day in general. So thank you for that. 
Of course. And also, I love this idea of looking for something because you know it will be asked of you. And what a wonderful practice where you can get like an accountability buddy or, or even if it's like something that you commit to yourself, like I am going to require a gratitude every single day and therefore I will be looking for those gratitudes and that improves your life. I love that that challenged you to keep looking and what a wonderful lesson I just got out of that. Absolutely. And I can't take credit for it. It's actually one of the most famous and most effective positive interventions in positive psychology created by Marty Seligman. It's called The Three Good Things, listing three things that you're grateful every day. And what it does is exactly what you just said. And so I have all of my students and my clients do it. And the best way to do it, one of my favorite ways is like you said, with an accountability buddy where you're sharing with someone else, because not only does it make you look for the positive, but it also creates an excuse and opportunity for daily positive connection. And again, along with going outside, probably the best thing you can do for yourself. And I also really loved what you said about, you know, we sit inside and whether we realize it or not, becoming a martyr for the cause. And it, it actually triggered a thought for me, which was, when you stay inside, which I have done, and I think we've all gone through these like spurts of time where we've stayed indoors and it's definitely affected our mental health. And I realized that when you do that, there's a cycle in which like, because you're working and you're like, I can be more productive if I don't stop and I stay inside and I do it. Any energy that you're drawing from to give you some sort of meaning is only coming from work then. Instead of actually getting outside and starting to draw energy from other parts of your life. So really being productive, and and I do that in air quotes, being productive and staying inside actually limits you to only drawing energy from your work. Oh my gosh, we're going on such a tangent, but you just hit on one of my favorite points about why perfectionism is so damaging. And you could say perfectionism, you could say workaholism, all of these things really get bound up together. And I think one of the most damaging elements of it is that our identities get so subsumed in our work. And it's a chicken and an egg problem because if you define your self-worth and you define your identity on your ability to produce the best possible work or perform in this one narrow area, it makes sense that you will give more and more of your time, your energy, your life in order to preserve that because you're protecting your feelings of self-worth. But in order to do that, you are excluding everything else which means that you then have nothing else in your life or your world that's worth living for, which reinforces your belief that, well, if I'm not perfect at this one thing, then I have nothing. So then you pour even more into it and it becomes this vicious cycle. And actually the way to break it is to push yourself outside of it, to recognize that you are not your performance on this one thing. Like This is not your identity. This is not your worth. And there's other things worth living for too, but it's you have to force yourself to re-experience that and re-experience what is possible in order to even internalize it. So I'm so glad that you pointed that out. And it's it's interesting. And then we're going to go to your origin story for sure. Um, but I just love talking to you and you're so knowledgeable about this. It reminds me actually, do you know Jennifer Thibodeau? I don't know her, but I, I listened to your conversation with her. So I feel like I know her now. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. You would love her. And I know she would love you. But one of the things we were talking about in the podcast was the Happiness Lab, which is another podcast, which I absolutely love. 
And they were talking about this idea of diversifying your personal portfolio. What do you like? What do you identify with? What are you proud of? And I think that really aligns with what you're saying, which is we need to be able to pour energy into other things, diversify who we are and what we think we represent so that we don't put our eggs all in one basket. It's so true. And I I love the happiness lab. I love Lori Santos. She was actually my psych advisor way back in the day before she was doing anything related to positive psychology, actually. She was just running the monkey lab at Yale and I was allergic to monkeys. So even though I was a psych major, I was like, I'm not going near that. But but (laughs) she was still my advisor. And then so years later, once I was already teaching positive lawyering and her class came out and I just love what she's done because I feel like she really put positive psychology on the map because there was so much attention on it. And so I love the podcast. I love that point in particular. It's fun to connect all of the dots here. Yeah. So let's get into your origin story because you're a positive psychologist and you're a lawyer. How did that all start? Oh, so part of me feels ashamed to tell you that I should not have gone to law school, which I actually think is worth sharing here because I don't think that I'm the only person who is like that. And so basically, I was a psychology major at Yale, working with Lori Santos, and I was passionate about psychology. I was taking teacher prep courses, and yet it was junior year. All of my friends were going into finance or consulting, and something in psychology or teaching just didn't feel prestigious enough, honestly. And so what do a lot of people who don't know what they want to do and are good at taking tests and are type A and good writers and all of the things, they go to law school. And so I got into Yale Law School. I decided I was going to go. And then there was this sort of cognitive dissonance where I had to come up with a better story, a better cause than that for why I was going to law school. So for a variety of reasons, I decided I want to be a federal prosecutor. That will be my stated passion that I'm just going to put on. And one thing that I had gotten really good at by that point in my life was how do I do all of the things to get whatever goal it is that I've set my sight on. And so I went into Yale Law School checking every single box, throwing myself in 150%, going to what you said earlier, how sometimes we work so much we don't go outside Again, a thing that I'm embarrassed to admit to you, but I do it because I think it helps prove a point. I didn't go outside for 10 days during the reading period because literally all I did was study. I remember when I got a massage the day after my last final, my masseur said, girl, there are people in prison who look better than you. And I was just so intense, so unhappy, so unhealthy, and so, to an objective observer, wildly successful. And that was what I was going to do. And that was what I kept doing. And then I started seeing all of these warning signs that what I was doing wasn't right. I noticed that I actually, nothing gives me more anxiety and especially at the time than solitary research and writing. Turns out prosecutors, litigators do a lot of solitary research and writing. Yes. I realized that I hate being in an adversarial environment. Shockingly, prosecution, somewhat adversarial. Um, I was so lonely. It physically hurt. I was so anxious. It was difficult to function. Some days I was still functioning, but it was difficult to function. And just all of these signs were that something was wrong. And I just kept ignoring them, honestly, until I couldn't 
anymore. And then basically I had a mini existential crisis my 2L summer at Davis Polk because that was where I saw funneled a lot of people to the U.S. Attorney's Office. I had committed to two federal clerkships because that's what you did if you wanted to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I was just so anxious and so unhappy that I finally started working with a therapist, thank God. And she had me do this very basic values discovery exercise that summer where simply she showed me a list of values, was like, what are your top five and how is what you're doing with your life aligning with it? And I kind of had this, oh my God moment because I recognized that not only was everything that I was doing really not aligned at all with my values, my top values were love, connection, authenticity. And here I was isolating myself, feeling like the lonely person in the world, wearing this passion and cause that actually wasn't my own. And so that felt just really icky for me. But even kind of more revolutionary for me was that I realized I had literally never thought, what are my values? What do I actually care about? For my entire life, it had just been like, what should I be doing? And so that started the wheels turning there. And I started thinking about different things, but I, I kept going at that point. And basically, it got to a point where I'd graduated from law school. I was in my initial clerkship, still working, giving 150%. And there, I really started to see some of the mental and physical tools of burnout starting to come out. And this is something that happens to everyone that I say is you can do it for a time, but if you don't listen to your body when it whispers or your mind, it's going to start screaming. And so my mind and body started screaming at me. And it was actually a kind of last gasp Google search on how to be happy because I was so not that led me to discovering positive psychology. I started reading voraciously about it, decided that I wanted to do this certification program literally as a matter of self-help at that point. And it just blew up my brain. And I recognized that all lawyers and law students desperately need this information and none of them have it. And so that was really what inspired me to go back to my passion for psychology, take what I had experienced and learned in law school and my first few years out and create this mission for myself that for the first time actually really filled me up with this sense of authentic passion and purpose, which is delivering this critical information to lawyers and law students and other high-achieving professionals before they reach their own breaking points so that they can actually go on to enjoy satisfying and sustainably successful careers within the legal profession. Wow. So I have a lot of questions about your journey. <laughs> um, first, you said when you decided to be a federal prosecutor that you told yourself a story that would yeah. be um, helpful to you in anchoring the reason why you were going in that direction, right? Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think I did the same thing for myself. Like when I was in college, I was an English major. I mean, I loved it. I just read all the time and I loved to write and I was doing some acting classes. And so to me, like the creative space was where it was at. And then I was like, I'm going to get a master's in creative writing and I'm going to write a book. And then, you know, I got a lot of outside factors that were telling me, listen, you have to make more money. Like you're never going to make money. You're going to always be going to be struggling. Um, and so I decided my story was, well, I am going to represent the very people that I want to be. I'm going to represent the writers. I'm going to represent the actors. I'm going to represent them. And I like really dove into that thinking like that was what was going to anchor me. 
do you mind me asking you what what anchored you to federal prosecution? Because it seems like a huge leap from psychology to federal prosecution. Absolutely. This goes really hand in hand with imposter syndrome, which along with perfectionism, I think has just been a defining aspect of my identity growing up. I got involved in middle school with human rights and specifically human rights for girls around the world, anti-sex trafficking work. And this was something I co-founded with my mother at the time, an organization called Girls Learn International. And granted, I'm in the eighth grade. My mother was, she was the one, this was her cause. She felt so, so passionate about it. And I got really involved with it. And I felt it was deeply important. And I felt really good about the work that I was doing. And so throughout high school, I was very involved with anti-sex trafficking work from an advocacy perspective. To be totally honest, it never felt like it was my cause or my specific purpose. And this is literally the first time I've ever admitted this out loud. At the same time that I could recognize that this is deeply important and I'm happy to be doing it, I felt fraudulent kind of announcing it as my cause. I knew that we were doing amazing work. I was proud of that. But still, there was a real kind of imposter syndrome there where I felt like I was putting this out as my reason for being the thing that got me up in the morning. And the truth is that it wasn't. But that narrative there, once I saw, okay, I'm going to law school, I ended up when I'm the summer before my senior year, I RA'd for a criminal law professor at Yale who taught federal criminal law. And I learned that there was this statute, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And I'm like, oh, okay, federal law, super, super prestigious. Maybe you can even be a prosecutor. Maybe you can even become a judge one day. That's really cool. Here's this nexus between the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and the work that I've been doing. Here's this narrative. I can write my law school essay about this. It got me into law school. And I went in, I said, this is my cause. And so I did all of the things focused on anti-sex trafficking prosecution, on domestic violence, everything related to that. And again, the whole time I objectively felt this is so important. I really cared, but I felt like I was being fraudulent because it did not light me up in the way that I was presenting that it did. And that Mm. just made me feel like a terrible person. And the reason that I think that this is important to share is that I honestly thought that I was a terrible person, that there was something wrong with me for that, and that I was morally inferior. And it wasn't until years later when I started doing the work that I'm doing now and working with other law students, lawyers, chronic perfectionists, overachievers who are in so much pain and think that they're living their lives in a way that they need to but actually don't know that they are holding themselves back, not only from health and happiest, but also doing their most essential work. That all of a sudden, when I started doing that work, it lit me up in a way that I literally did not even imagine possible before. And it imbued me with a sense of passion and purpose. And in psychology, we talk about flow. So the thing that you're doing when you're so engaged and absorbed that you lose track of time, the thing that you would do for hours and hours and hours for free, because it's so important to you and you love it so much. And that's what that gave to me. And now I'm recognizing that I would like to think, and it it does indeed appear that I am having a real meaningful impact on the lives of the people that I work with. And 
I don't think that there's anything less important about that than the work that I was doing. And I think that I am so much better at it because in addition to throwing all of my energy and effort into it, which I did with all of my work before, I'm also throwing my heart and my soul into it. And I think that whenever we do that, we are so much better and more effective than when we're doing the thing that we think that we just should be doing when our hearts and our souls aren't in it. But in order to get to that, in order to find out what really does light you up, you have to create space by stepping away from the story, which I think is so hard and scary and really doesn't happen for too many people. So thank you for for yes. asking me to share that. Yeah. No, first of all, I love the idea of stepping away from the story, right? We talk so much about leaning in, but it's important to also step away Um, Something that I always think about is that the most important story that we tell is the one that we tell to ourselves because that story is the one that's going to determine the decisions that we make in our lives and really reminding ourselves to challenge what that story is. And also a huge takeaway for me from your story is that it is okay to recognize that there are many important causes out there, but that they're not for you to work on. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I, I actually, I now think that we're almost doing a disservice to the world by giving a hundred percent of ourselves to causes that are not really our own because it's preventing us from figuring out what our causes are and making our impact in that way. And there's a way to support causes that you care about and think are really important without giving yourself 150% to them. So do I still think that anti-sex trafficking work is hugely important? And do I do various things to try to support it? Yes, 100%. But that doesn't have to be my identity. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to go back to what you said earlier about the importance of the stories that we tell ourselves. And so It definitely applies on this kind of broader level of like, what is my purpose? What is the impact that I'm going to have? But even on a much more nitty gritty day to day level, every thought that we have is a story that we're telling ourselves. This is the whole basic model of cognitive behavioral therapy that the thoughts that we tell ourselves or the stories that we accept as true then shape how we feel which then shape how we show up in the world. And so just breaking this down to a very basic concept, I was doing a group coaching session with um, a group of Yale Law students last night, which is actually a wonderful full circle experience for me because I was working with them on the very things that I wish desperately someone had worked with me on at that point. And we were talking about, it was a group of 1Ls, the thoughts that go through their head in the classroom. And these are the ones that I don't deserve to be here. I'm so stupid. I can't do this. And then you say, well, how does it make you feel when you say those thoughts to yourselves and it makes them feel self-doubt, their energy dips, they're distracted from whatever's going on in the classroom. They're not focusing on what is it that I don't understand and how can I go about actually increasing my understanding? And that causes them to pull back and actually perform much worse. Whereas if they could swap that out for a more empowering thought, which is, yes, I'm confused, but that is part of the 1L experience. No one here really understands what's going on. I do deserve to be here. What can I do to make this experience a little bit less scary so that I can 
focus on what's going on and identify what it is to do better. And that's a completely different impact in terms of how they feel in their bodies and the actions that they take. And no one really recognizes that our thoughts are neither fact necessarily, nor are they us. They are these programmed things that we're really used to thinking. And so they they pop up. And those are all kind of more granular level stories that we're telling ourselves all day. I love how you're using like real life examples of students in law school to help people understand not only the things that people are struggling with, but how people in the legal industry are struggling with it specifically. Could you give another example of perhaps an attorney, a seasoned attorney, or somebody that's looking to transition. What's an example that you can give of those thoughts and those actions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that things that people think make you effective lawyers. So you're extremely risk averse makes sense, right? It's what the lawyer's job is, safeguard our client's interests. And extremely focused on the negativity bias, all of these different types of things. And so lawyers tend to be highly self-critical, highly perfectionistic. They want to cross all of their T's, dot all of their I's. And so an example that comes to mind recently is how when we use these things, they actually hold us back. And one of the things that I think is most important to work with people on is they think that their perfectionism and their self-criticism have been driving them forward. They recognize that it's painful in certain ways, but they think that they need to hold on to it because it's the secret sauce for their success. And what I truly believe and what the science shows is that actually we have all gotten to where we are notwithstanding all of this self-criticism and self-doubt. And actually it's been like this giant weight shackled onto our ankles that's holding us down. And if we can release that, we'll still have our high standards. We'll still have our diligence. We'll still have our commitment to excellence, but we'll soar so much higher because we'll no longer have this weight. And so one example that comes to mind is recently I was working with a client who her goal was really to be able to step into her power at work and specifically in the courtroom. And what she described to me was that often she'll be in court and the other party will say something and a thought will go through her mind. She'll have an instinct that she really believes is right, but she can't say for a hundred percent certainty in that moment without going back and checking the books that it's right. And so she stays silent. And this is something that I think is very common with lawyers. I would say even more common with female lawyers is that we will stay silent and we'll keep ourselves small because we're so scared of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And we doubt that certainty and confidence in ourselves. And basically what I walked through with this client was that by not speaking, when she truly felt like she knew the answer. So this wasn't a case of like, oh, I'm encouraging everyone to just spout off nonsense if they don't know. If you don't, if you feel like you don't know, you say you don't know, can I get back to you? But you feel like you know that basically she was effectively ceding the point to the other side because she was so scared of what would happen if she spoke out and was wrong. And so we went down the line of like, so what happens if you speak out and you're wrong? There's two possibilities. One, the judge might go with you anyways, or two, you're wrong and the other, the other party wins their point okay, what happens if you don't speak out? The the other party automatically wins. And so I think that there is this action passivity 
distinction that people often feel like freezing or not acting is just punting the decision. It's not an action. But in many cases, definitely when you're in the courtroom, not speaking is effectively giving the point to the other side. And so the thoughts that she was having was, you may not be right. People might judge you. You could mess this whole thing up. Those thoughts were not helpful in that moment. All that they were doing was paralyzing her with fear. So what would be more empowering thoughts in that moment? You know this. You prepared for this. You feel like you know this. Worst case scenario, if you're wrong, you can always correct it. But if you don't speak now, you are giving this to the other side. And I think that that fear of failure and that fear of making a mistake when it's taken to an extreme. And again, I'm not saying go about acting recklessly when you don't have the answer. That's not the issue that most lawyers have. Some do, but that's not our audience here, I would say. That learning how to empower and trust yourself and recognizing that as a sign of strength, certainly as a sign of leadership, is something that we have control over but it is not at all intuitive in any way to, to, to many risk-averse, highly prudent lawyers. I know when I was litigating, that was a huge problem for me. I'd be in a moment where I was like, oh, I know exactly what to say, but is it 100% correct? Is it 100% accurate? What would happen if I was wrong? And providing women and other professionals, the tools that are necessary to recognize those moments, understand what the root cause is there, and then be able to give tools to tackle them, I think is just such an excellent example for a lot of litigators out there. Totally. And one other just really quick example that I want to give, because I think it's so important. One of the biggest misconceptions among lawyers, this is going back to what we talked about earlier, is that in order to be effective, we need to give everything to our work. And any space, time, energy that we devote to cultivating basically anything that actually makes us feel good, whether it's outside of work, so sleep, family, exercise, or even inside work. So taking time to have some banter and connect with a colleague or taking a walk during the day or seeking out things that really interest you and following that lead as opposed to just, you know, assuming that everything needs to be head down it's painful or it's not working. That is one of the, I think, most deeply ingrained misconceptions that a lot of lawyers have. And I think that it prevents them from, again, happiness, health. Obviously, not everyone cares about that, though. Also doing their best work, either because they will burn out, which many of them will, but even if they don't burn out, this is something I was talking about last night, I almost feel like burnout saves a lot of people because it forces them to recognize that they need to do something differently. So I am so grateful for hitting bottom. And I, I joke with people that I was so extreme that I hit bottom really quickly because I was so insanely intense in all of my maladaptive tendencies. But I think that gives people often a turning point, an opportunity for post-traumatic growth, you might say, whereas I think the worst outcome is never bottoming out in a way that forces you to make a change, but just existing in this perpetual state of languishing or malaise or 
lack of health, lack of engagement, lack of energy. And so many, so many lawyers do that for their entire lives and their entire careers. And they have no idea that there's something better than that, both in terms of their well-being, but also their professional performance. Because all of the science shows that when we experience positive emotions and those rush of dopamine and serotonin and endorphins, and when we experience connection, so all of those positive chemicals add some oxytocin onto it, when we experience meaning, all of those things turbocharge our engagement, our cognitive processing. They broaden our thinking. They make us better problem solvers. Just We do all of our best work when we are in this state of positive energy. And so literally so many lawyers are living their lives, again, going back to the martyr for the cause, doing what they think that they need to do in order to do their best work. And truly, they're just holding themselves back from even coming close to realizing what their best work actually could be. I know that before I burnt out, I recognized that burnout was a thing and I respected that it existed. But I also had this like simultaneous thought process that I was like, well, I'm stronger than that. I can get through that. Like, look at me and how long I've gone. And seeing that perpetual like timeline as my mental strength versus being like, no, 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 actual mental strength is identifying what I actually want and using my mental strength to get me there instead. Absolutely. And again, this is going on the list of things that I'm embarrassed to share publicly, but I think it's helpful. The thought I am a machine used to go through my mind. Like I can just do it longer. I'm just willing to keep going when other people can't. And this would come into play with my work. It would come into play with exercise too. I learned at a certain point that I could like read briefs and outlines on the elliptical. And I'm like, oh, well, if I'm getting reading done, why elliptical for 40 minutes if you could elliptical for two hours? When I would see other people leave the library and go have dinner with their significant other, I would think like, I'm a machine. I'm so much better. And the truth is that none of us are machines. There's limits for a reason. We need to recharge. If we don't recharge, we'll either bottom out, or we just won't be at peak energy. And when we start digging beneath the normal human output before the need to recharge, we're digging into something else. And so what is it that we're digging into? Because And the consequences of that probably won't end up so, so good for us. So being able to identify that. And a scary fact that I feel like is very helpful to share about sleep deprivation is that most adults, when you tell them you need seven to nine hours of sleep to function optimally, and that even there's a Harvard Medical School sleep study showing that six hours every night for two weeks is effectively the same as pulling an all-nighter, which prompts cognitive impairment that's equivalent to legal intoxication. Terrifying. But the scariest thing is that, and lawyers are super skeptical, they're always like, no, I sleep six hours a night every night, I'm fine. Or I sleep five hours a night, I'm fine. The crazy thing about sleep deprivation is that our brains reacclimate to our lower level of functioning. So we think that we're just fine. We're like doing our, our best thinking and our best work because we forget what it feels like to function on a healthy amount of sleep. And it's the same thing with well-being more generally that like we think we can cut it. We think that this is all working just fine for us. And the truth, like, we have no idea how we are kind of doing all of our work with our dominant hand tied behind our backs because we are cutting ourselves off from the essential energy supplies that we need in order to even do it effectively. 
it's scary because you can reacclimate. And so to yourself, you think that everything's fine, but truly you're just reacclimating to a different level. And that I have never heard before. And that is something I need to think deeply about because I try to get a lot of sleep, but you know, kids, life, you know, yeah. I mean, we, we all know that it can be difficult, but rethinking that, you know, I'm okay idea and recognizing that there's a reacclimation happening is a really important fact. Thank you for that. So what does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law, it's human-centered leadership. And so it's understanding that the way to inspire and empower and bring out the best in people is to connect with them on a human level and to help imbue them with a sense of meaning and connection that will really set them up to be able to do their very best work. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Oh my gosh. Well, a lot of things. Toxic positivity comes to mind. People are like, oh, positive psychology. So you're just telling me to ignore everything that's negative and be delusional and pretend that everything is good. And that's not it at all. Positive psychology isn't at all about ignoring or excusing the negative things. It's recognizing that there is so much value in cultivating the positive and that both can exist simultaneously. There are many negative things that we don't have control over, or maybe we do have control and we're working on them in different ways, but that cultivating positive things alongside it. And when I say positive, I don't mean just, oh, feeling happy. I mean cultivating meaning and connection and belonging and authenticity. Those things aside from it can have just manifold benefits in our ability to effectively manage and withstand the negative things that we don't have control over and we have to handle. And I think just the other thing that people don't understand is they think that it's tricking ourselves. And the truth is that no, our brains are tricking us every freaking day. Our brains, they think they're protecting us. God help them. But they are based on these evolutionary principles that maybe served us hundreds and hundreds of years ago, or maybe even served us at various points in our childhood when we needed these things as a form of protection, but now they are not helping us. They are hurting us. And so we need to recognize that. And we also need to recognize that we have the power to change our relationships with our thoughts and change our relationships with ourselves even if we feel like they are not optimal at this point. Excellent answer. Thank you. Um, if there was one thing that you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm just going to start in law school and I, I would get rid of the curve. I think that there are so many things in both law school and the legal profession that structurally and systemically are set up in ways based on just because these are the ways that things have always been. And what they do effectively is they're undermining the well-being but also the professional identity formation and the effectiveness of law students and lawyers. And so just starting with the curve, first of all, it's ridiculous. And second of all, it is, it is the very root of this cutthroat, competitive, zero sums mentality that does not serve law students while they're in law school or when they get into practice. Because the truth is, is that the way to rise as a leader, the way to be most effective is not by elbowing out the competition and kind of climbing on top of them in order to stand out. It's by working together, lifting each other up. And that is how we become 
most powerful. That is how we become most effective. And so I would, I would ditch the curve. I am 100% on board. I believe the curve is a huge way in which we fundamentally shape the way that lawyers behave and act in the future in a very negative way. <laughs> it, it sets all the wrong incentives. I honestly, I feel like the curve is the billable hour for law students. It's hurting in so many ways, and yet we keep it because it's the way it's always been. Yes. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. Be kind to yourself. That sounds super woo-woo and fluffy, and it's not at all because if I could leave people with one point, it is that your ruthless self-criticism, self-doubt, and I say this because I feel like the vast majority of lawyers and law students do this and none of them talk about it with each other. And so they all feel like they are uniquely justified in their self-criticism and also that it's driving them to do better. It is not. It is holding you back from doing your very best work in all of the ways that we described earlier. And in order to lead others, you need to start with yourself. And one, because it'll set you up to be able to do your best work that'll enable you to rise as a leader. But also the best leaders are the ones that model empathy and model compassion and create psychological safety. And it's really hard to authentically create psychological safety for other people when you are tearing yourself to shreds on the inside. So be kind to yourself, be kind to other people, and recognize that that will actually be your superpower in the workplace, in addition to being happy and healthy. And I always put that as an afterthought, not because I think it's an afterthought. I know that it all starts there, but because I know that perhaps many people listening to this podcast will say, well, no, no, I don't really care about the health and happiness right now. I just want to be effective. I just want to be a leader. So even if those are your incentives, be kind to yourself. Final question. What do you do for self-care? I love this question. It's two-part. One's active and one's passive. So it starts with the passive. And it's ironic because my number one value is connection. And I am such an introvert, Seagal. And people often don't believe me. They're like, but you're so bubbly and you can love connecting with people. I'm like, introversion means that I recharge in silence and solitude. And so for me, because the work that I do is so interactive and person-based, on the weekends, there's nothing that I love more than just taking a few silent hours with my book. I Nothing gets me out of my own thoughts better than great fiction. And when I say, when I say great fiction, I mean like psychological thriller, drama, like pull me into someone else's anxious thought story. And that gets me out of my brain. And just a few hours of silence that enables me to restore my energy so that I can show up fully in my interpersonal interactions. And the second thing, the thing that once I've gotten my energy to baseline, my favorite form of self-care is connecting deeply with my favorite people. And so Honestly, just spending some silly time with my husband or my closest friends or other people one-on-one deep, real connection is my favorite thing to do once I've filled myself up. So I would say silent Saturday mornings and then deep, deep connection. Beautifully put. I love that so much. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, connect with you, learn more about what you do, how can they do so? 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, on LinkedIn, Jordana Confino, you can find me there. And then my website is jordanaconfino.com. And there you'll find more information about me and my work. And you can sign up for my newsletter. I'm constantly putting out posts related to all the things that we've been talking about today. So that's a great place to find me as well. And thank you so much for having me, Sigal. This was a true pleasure and special treat for me to spend the afternoon with you. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.